Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode, you'll hear Nicole Byer. That whole week, I kept taking drunk showers because I was like, it feels so good. <laughs> it, it feels so good to be drunk but clean. Um, that and more. But before that, as you might remember, Chris Castiglione was a member of the Risk team for a long time. He created our site at risk-show.com. And with his business partner, Matan, Chris went on to create an online class called One Month HTML. A lot of Risk fans took the class and commented on just how easy it is to learn to code with the One Month video course. But remember, the One Month guys have an even more popular course, One Month Rails. One Month Rails is a series of bite-sized video lessons and step-by-step tutorials that teach anyone, even a total beginner, how to build their first web application, like a photo sharing app, in just 30 days. If you get stuck, there's always a real person that can help you. In One Month Rails, you'll learn Ruby on Rails, HTML, CSS, Bootstrap, GitHub, and more. Over 14,000 students have already started building their dream app and taking their career to the next level. So what are you waiting for? Enroll now at onemonth.com slash risk loves you. Enrollment is typically $99, but if you join now, you'll get a one-time discount of 25% off for joining. And of course, you'll be helping to support risk. Again, it's one month rails, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll actually build your first web app. Also, as you guys know, Risk is a member of the Maximum Fun Network of Podcasts, and there's this great idea that Jesse Thorne and his team at Maximum Fun thought up. It's the MaximumFun.org 
listener panel. How it works is you sign up for free to become a member of the listener panel, and from time to time, they'll ask you to listen to an episode, it might be a new one or it might be an existing Max Fun episode, to offer your thoughts and feedback. It's a great way to help Maximum Fun create programming that's more and more to your liking. So go to MaximumFun.org slash listener panel and become a part of it all today. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Irvin. Oh my God, this is Irvin Mayfield and the New Orleans Jazz Playhouse Review. You'd think they could have gotten a couple more words in their name, but it'll do. It'll do. Folks, this is the first of two holiday-themed episodes that we're doing for 2014. We have a lot of Christmas and Thanksgiving and Hanukkah stories to share. And as usual, some of them are hilarious. Some of them are horrifying. Some of them are very sad. It's a mixed bag. It's the usual emotional roller coaster ride. We don't change it up for the holidays. If anything, the holidays bring out the best and worst of all of us so get ready (laughs) get ready for some ups and downs on both of these episodes in a little bit we're going to hear from comedian sam firestein but before that we're going to hear from new york-based storyteller sandy marks her book the bag lady of scarsdale will be out soon here she is at the risk live show in new york city with a story we call Jew Heaven. Okay, so when I was a really little kid, I knew that my life was one major clusterfuck. It was just pathetic. And I blamed, and I still blame, my grandparents, Hannah and Abe, because they came from the old country, they were Polish, and they were first cousins and they got married, which is not something you're supposed to do. (laughs) So we had a family tree with a lot of dead stumps and pruning necessary. There was like long-term illnesses, diseases, 
low IQs, my father, low IQ, and this was the beginning of my life because this poor man couldn't hold a job. We lived in this tiny apartment. My sister and I shared this little room, and that's being really overselling it. We lived in the dinette, which is really the alcove to the avocado green refrigerator and the stove. That was our room. We slept in the kitchen, and it was kind of cozy, and it could be fun if you liked food, but we weren't as much into the food as my mother, who claimed to be a lifelong member of Weight Watchers, except every night, around midnight, when we were sound asleep, you could hear her sidling past us in her house coat with the lint in the pockets to get to the fridge. And she would wake us up by opening that refrigerator door. I would see the light, I'd open an eye, and there was Greta standing there chugging a fresca and eating a Pop-Tart. She didn't even bother to toast it. She just dry, cold, white, flaky. And this is not what sweet dreams were made of, you know? And I knew, even when I was like nine, 10 years old, that I needed so much more. I had to get out of the dinette somehow. And I was a dreamer. So what I would do is I would go with my best friend, Angela Saris, and we would go to the Trilon Movie Theater on Queens Boulevard every Saturday and Sunday and just sit there the entire day and get lost in movies that were our sort of Cinderella stories because this was what I needed, what I wanted. It was my escape. Now, you have to understand, back then... To go to the movie theater and spend a whole day there, you're only watching one movie. It wasn't a multiplex. It wasn't like you were sneaking from one movie to another. So we would see whatever was playing over and over and over (laughs) and over. Now, we also would smoke entire packs of cigarettes. And I was 12. But we thought we, we didn't inhale them, but we just sat there. We thought we were so cool. So the first love story, Cinderella story that we loved, was called Love Story. And it starred Ali McGraw, who had amazing, clean, brown, shiny hair and perfect calf muscles. And then her boyfriend was Oliver Barrett III, played by Ryan O'Neill, who had sandy blonde hair, and he always wore like a cashmere Burberry coat. And he was really wealthy, and they fell in love, and she came from the wrong side of the tracks. And those were the kind of movies. That was my jam. So I knew that one day that I was going to aspire. And I was proud to admit it. I had no apologies for this. I was going to find my Prince Charming. And as I got older, I became way more sophisticated in my movie tastes. So it became flash dance. Because (laughs) Jennifer Beals, welding by day, working the pole at night, fell in love with Michael Nouri, your boss. And then there was that pouty Molly Ringwald in, in, in whatever that movie was called you know what I'm talking about and she fell in love with Andrew McCarthy and I knew that one day this was my fate I was getting out of that kitchen I was going to find my prince so I grew up and I became a human being that knew she had to find a job because there weren't a lot of princes wandering around Yellowstone Boulevard in Queens and I got out of college and I actually made enough just enough money $350 a week to live on my own in the city and in the 80s you could actually do that it was not a myth you could live with a real, like, eating kitchen, you need a roommate, but you could live for, like, $350 a week. So, but I started dating a lot, and I was very specific. I had a punch list for all my friends. I said, okay, I'm still on my quest. I need to find my Oliver Barrett. He has to have a good job. He has to come from a good family line, because I had the tree stump problem. <laughs> and I also wanted to make sure that he would be kind and handsome. He had to be a prince. So... In my search, a guy comes on my first date. His name was Brendan, and I was all ready in my probably purple leotard or something because I was kind of trashy. And I, and I really didn't really know how you're supposed to dress for a prince, but I figured, a unitard, what's the big deal? So I opened the door, and there is this really handsome guy, and he looks a little bit like 
Andrew McCarthy or maybe Ryan O'Neill, and he's wearing not one, not two, but three Ralph Lauren shirts at the same time. <laughs> People used to do that. So it's polo, collar up, Oxford cloth, collar up, Oxford cloth, collar up, collar up, collar up. All the colors stand straight up. It was like preppy 80s chic. I mean, it was like, I can afford three Ralph Lauren shirts, so I'm going to wear them all at the same time. And he was, was carrying a huge fistful of wildflowers, zinnias and goldenrods. I was in love. This was it. And somehow, inexplicably, we got along. We were like the most opposite people on the planet. But I think he had a fantasy. I was his Eliza Doolittle, and he would make me more like him, and I thought maybe I could get him to speak up and emote a little bit, but whatever, it worked. And we stayed together. I found my Oliver Barrett, and within two years, I became Sandy Marks. I married this guy, and he came from a family who lived on a compound in Mill Neck on the Gold Coast of Long Island. They had 10 acres and a house and a lot of cloth napkins and sterling silver flatware and they had a cob which is a wine cellar I found out and it was unbelievable and I just this was my life I mean there were some downsides to being married to my prince which was I had to learn whom instead of who and I had to learn which fork to use for salad when you ate at their house I had to start dressing a little better and I had to sort of conform and he Stop criticizing me, snapping my fingers every time Michael Jackson came on the radio if we were on an elevator. So we tried to meet each other halfway. But we were both so busy working really hard and raising. We had three kids together with his good bloodline. And they all looked like him. They had blue eyes, blonde hair. So I was in, like, Jew heaven. Things were working out. They were looking up. I mean, it was looking up. So anyway, every year, the tension would really be amped up because I'd have to go there for Christmas. Now, I grew up in a Hanukkah house, and it was a poor Hanukkah house, so we're talking like Hoffman's cream soda and some gefilte fish and yelling with your mouth open with food in your mouth. There was not a lot of pomp and circumstance, but this was like a real, like Fanny Alexander, the Nutcracker Suite, a real Christmas house. So every year we'd go out, and on this one particular year, I was really nervous because at this point, all of his siblings, he had two sisters and a brother, and they all had a shit ton of kids. And we had to bring a gift for every single one of them, plus every adult. Now, we didn't make a lot of money. He was an attorney. I was a young talent agent. But we had enough to scrap together. So I figured, OK, this year, I'm going to be smart. So I go to Toys R Us for the kids. Everyone gets a toy. It wasn't a big expense, no problem. But the grown-ups, the stakes are higher. Now, these people like L.L. Bean. They like, like gifts from the Museum of Modern Art gift shop and all sorts of crest pins and thing. I didn't even know half that stuff. Laura Ashley. So I thought, all right, I'm going to re-gift because I'm a talent agent and all my clients give me really cool shit and I'll give it to them. They'll never know. So one of my clients, Barbara Feldon, who played Agent 99 in Get Smart, she was a very elegant woman and she gave me the most beautiful coffee table book called A Day in the Life in America. And it was collecting dust on coffee tables all over the country. It was a really good book. I thought, okay, this is really classy. And Nancy, my sister-in-law, was a photography buff, so I knew she was going to really like this book. So I carefully wrapped it, because they wrap everything really well in their house. You know, everything's perfect. They put ribbons on everything. And we loaded it in the car with our three kids in their car seats and all the other presents. And I'm going out to Mill Neck thinking, I got this. I am finally a true Marx. I am not anymore going to be that shitty kid who grew up in that dinette. So we get out there, everybody's happy, and there. as soon as you walk into the Mark's house, it is 
anything I dreamt of. It smells like pine cones and pig being roasted in the oven and the wines are opened and Roland Marx, the dad, is already drunk because honestly he has a sommelier cup and he calls himself a wine aficionado. He's just an old drunk and he's already drunk and he's wearing his tweed jacket and his silk I shit you not, cravat or an ascot. He looks like one of those playing cards in Monopoly, like, take a chance, or I'm the best. <laughs> Pushy eyebrows. And then Pat, she's really willowy, and she has long arms and a tiny waist and short hair and blue eyes. But the only problem with all of these Marxes is, because they don't have the olive Sephardic sin that my people have, one of our traits, is they all look like Ethel Kennedy, like after a drunken spree off of a ferry in Nantucket somewhere, their skin is dry, and they don't condition their hair properly, so all the Marx girls, they, they wear these brown velvet headbands to, they think it's fashionable, but they need a good blow dryer and, and some product, and they don't wear any makeup, no blush, no lip liner. They, they look fabicina. They're not, but they all, they're supposedly, they look like horsey women. They're not, they don't look like what, I mean, I show up there, I look like a whore, but this is what I was raised to look like. What I do wear, I wear, I have this one Laura Ashley dress with puffy sleeves because I saw Martha Stewart wearing it on the cover of a hostessing book. So I thought if it's good enough for Martha, I'll wear it, even though I think she was on her way to jail at the time, but it didn't matter. So that was the dress I used to wear. So we go into the house, it smells delicious, they have classical music playing, Pat makes her own pate, she serves greens that she calls endive rather than endive, and then she does this, this funny little thing whenever I'm there where she circles me to assess, it's, she's like Diane Fossey in Gorillas in the Mist, like checking out her prey, and she'll say things that are kind of anti-Semitic like, so Sandy, how do you cook your bagels and salmon, or I know you call it lox? Do you use capers or just some cheese on it? Like as if bagels and lox is such a foreign thing to anybody in New York. So, but that's okay, and Roland will pepper me with questions like, well, how are you doing at work, and how are the kids? And they, they all talk, and he lapses into French sometimes, even though he's not French, I don't know why. And then he does this thing where we sit at the table, and we sit at this fancy meal with all those forks and knives and plates, and he does this thing where he covers the wine bottle with a cloth, and he pours it, and then he asks us, he quizzes us, what is it that you like about this wine? Tell me about it. And I always say the same thing, it tastes really good. And Brendan's always going like this to me, I don't know what else I'm supposed to say. And Anyway, so we go and we eat, and everybody's <laughs> and then after we all eat, and all the Ethel Kennedy women, we all gather, we go into the family room, and we all sit in a circle, and then the kids rip through all their gifts in front of this tasteful, beautiful Christmas tree, just white, twinkly lights, little red AIDS ribbons, because she's such a liberal, and so <laughs> kids rip through the gifts, they're all happy, but now it's the adults' turn. Now the adults in the Marx family, they're very polite, and they open up their presents very deliberately. No wasting of tape or paper. And I secretly think that Pat Marx saves it all, and she makes a papier-mâché house for the children for the following Christmas. So she saves everything. So we're doing the adult presents, and they're opening up their L.L. Bean sweaters, hideous, and those PBS tote bags that they got from the last telethon and the mugs that matched and, and their CDs they got of Tchaikovsky. It's all crap. And then finally, I'm excited because I know I brought the goods. So Nancy finally gets my present and I'm just, 
I mean, I'm now a real Marx, even if I am wearing lip liners. So she gets to my present, and she slowly, very deliberately, she opens it up. Oohs and ahs, I have done it. And she holds up the book. Everyone looks at the book. And I am feeling so good about myself. Fuck everybody. I'm finally here. I've arrived. And then she opens it up to read my inscription. And it says, Dear Sandy, thank you for a wonderful year of hard work. Let's do it again next year. Love so much, Barbara. I have been bagged on my regifting. I never checked the fucking inside of that book. But she's a Marx, and she's so polite. So she just holds it up, and she says, well, thank you. And I'm a handleman, really. So I say, I know, isn't it great? Barbara gave me that book, and I couldn't find any more. They were sold out, so I gave you my copy. <laughs> what else was I going to say? And I, but meanwhile, I, I had to say something. When I had those flop sweats, like I had the circle rings under my boobs, from sweating, sweating, every, sweating, every, and my kids were young, so they didn't really know what a hard fucking nightmare this was. And Brendan is looking at me like, I'm going to kill you. Like, he just, but he's very waspy, so they don't say anything. They just look at you, like, look at you. So needless to say, very quiet ride back home that night. Not a peep. And he never said a word, because that's what those kind of guys do. He didn't say a word for years. We got divorced three years later, which was a good thing, because frankly, we never belonged together in the first place. I was trying to live out this love story dream, but if you've ever seen that movie Love Story, Jenny dies of a very strange cough before her 30th birthday. So it's not necessarily a great thing to be living out some fantasy on celluloid, because that's just a movie. And I learned how important it is. I should just enjoy, embrace my, who I was, where I came from. It wasn't so bad being raised in a dinette. My parents loved me and so did my sister. And it turned out like I turned out to be okay. But if you're going to give a gift again, and I mean this to everyone in this room, and Christmas is next week, it's fine to re-gift. There's nothing, it's actually a good thing to do. It's ecologically responsible. But check inside the books and in all the presents. Make sure that you don't get caught. Thank you. Now, like fellas, I've been walking around the North Pole with you for two days. Now, like fellas, I've been walking around the North Pole with you for two days. Now, like fellas, I've been walking around the North Pole with you for two days. I brewed up the Red Coast Baker. I brewed up the Red Coast I say bah, humbug. Bah, humbug. And a bah humbug to you. Right after I turned 28 uh, years old, I got a call from an old friend of mine from high school, uh, Liz. We hadn't talked in years, but she was like, uh, I'm wondering what happened to you. What have you been up to? Come over for dinner. And so I went, you know, and I thought, nah, why not? What the hell? You know, as soon as I saw her, I realized it was like, oh, people lose touch for a reason. <laughs> after she introduced me to her five cats, uh, she, like our conversation went something kind of like this. It was, uh, well, my work as a clinical psychologist, I really feel like I'm taking broken souls and helping them envision a regenesis of their paradigm. 
great. I help punk rock bands envision music videos by directing them. Just, uh, and you know, and now that we're talking about music, like what, what is it that we're listening to? And, uh, and she goes, oh, it's the Jekyll and Hyde soundtrack from Broadway. Didn't you see it? <laughs> no, I missed that one. And, uh, you know, Five Cats, Show Tunes, Psycho Babble. And then there she was, like, after dinner, just sitting there, and she purred at me. So, why aren't you hitting on me? <laughs> you know, and I looked at her, and I just thought, I can't, I can't. I can't. But I did. <laughs> you know, some of the highlights from my 20s, just to, not that I have any excuse, but, uh, you know, at the time I was living in a converted garage that I'd moved into after uh, my apartment was condemned in a flood. And uh, I'd had two near-fatal car accidents. I'd had uh, my face surgically reconstructed. Uh, my father was in the hospital with heart attacks. My parents were on the brink of bankruptcy. And right before Liz called me, the girl I thought I was going to marry left me. So I was a little broken. I was just a little broken. And uh, Liz had a great time. <laughs> she called it regenerating. And that's who she was. I, on the other hand, I found out the hard way that all of Liz's grooming took place uh, between the ankle and the knee. <laughs> and I've been trying to figure out a way to like describe what she was like in bed. And I, I've got two, like a Viking with a seizure. Or a bull with an arrow in it. Like, take your pick, because it was one and the same. But I got to tell you, like, I left there that night. I didn't think, like, I could hate my life any more than I already had. And uh, it turned out I was wrong. And you know that Liz called a lot, every day, all the time. And I kept trying to tell her. It was like, no, 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 Liz, this is not going to happen. This is not going to happen. And she would say, I hear you. Let's explore this. <laughs> and then like two hours of this just psycho babble beating later, I would come to like at dinner with her. And oh my God. And the, you know, and the thing was, it was like the old me, like the good me, the real me. Like I would have told her in the old days, like just get the hell out. Like and not look back. I wouldn't have cared anything. But no matter, like I, I felt so bad after getting dumped. Like I was just crushed. And, you know, Liz was a monster, but at the same time, it was like, I just, I didn't want to hurt her feelings. And I thought, you know, I, I can kind of just ease my way out of this thing. No. <laughs> no. There was no easing anything with Liz, because uh, easing my way out was um, two months later. I'm in her car on the way to the Sierras for a uh, lover's weekend. <laughs> Yeah, and as far as the easing my way out went, uh, sure, that'll happen just as soon as she stops hanging out with my mom. Yeah, but I didn't introduce him. <laughs> didn't need to. Not when Liz secretly copied my mother's number off of my caller ID. And, uh, oh, yeah, they would hang out. Liz would be like, God, imagine what he could be if he just let me clean him up. 
And my mother, yeah. Oh, that was just a small bit of what she said. You're getting the highlights. Oh, and my mother, my mother, Jewish doctor wants my son. She, that, that was, it's, it's really disturbing to watch your mother have a multiple orgasm talking about <laughs> the kidnapper that's trying to marry you. So um, it was truly awful. And as far as uh, this lover's weekend went, it was, uh, it started like everything else in my time with her, which was, uh, I'm not going, leave me alone. Yes, you are. No. Let's explore this. <laughs> and then two hours later, I'm on my way to the Sierras. And uh, about eight hours after that, eight hours of rent and Miss Saigon and Phantom, <laughs> later, I'm sitting in a McDonald's parking lot in the Sierras. Liz is destroying this like double this is back in the supersized days so she's just like like a wet dry shop vet going through this double meat double cheese Big Mac value meal and fries and she's got coke and grease smeared on her face and oh yeah she was a delicate little flower and uh, and I'm sitting there I'm holding this 39 cent cheeseburger and I gotta tell you like me and beef if you can call that beef uh, we we don't get along it's just like pure intestinal anarchy. But here was a whole new area of self-loathing that I hadn't explored. <laughs> and uh, I got to tell you, so what if it's been 10 years since I've had McDonald's? That first bite, the way it exploded in my mouth, that was uh, special. It was amazing. Like, but not as amazing as when we got to like, our little mountain retreat which was just a bunch of cabins, like 15 feet off the highway. But uh, as we were checking in, the woman at registration, she goes, oh, you're the lucky couple in Santa's cabin. <laughs> what? <laughs> Santa's what? She goes, oh, Santa's cabin. And Liz is like, oh, you're going to love it. And she takes off out the door. And I'm like, what the hell? And the woman's waving Merry Christmas and yelling at us. And I go outside. And then in the middle of a dozen normal cabins, is this one red door, fake snow, fake reindeer, and it really is Santa's cabin. Because Liz goes, oh my God, isn't it great? They bought it at auction when Santa's village was foreclosed on. <laughs> I'm like, forget the fact that like somebody actually foreclosed on Santa, right? <laughs> Who does that? But Liz, purposely booked us, two Jews, into Santa's cabin <laughs> in August. <laughs> and also, just so you know, just a little background, I am the son of a Holocaust-surviving Israeli military war veteran. Like, we're not like Jew-ish. Like, my family's fucking Jewish. And <laughs> this thing, it was just garlands and candy canes and angels. And it was like, it was like being, there was a Christmas tree with fake presents. It was like being trapped in a snow globe. <laughs> oh, and I'm just lying there that night in Santa's bed. Christmas tree's still flickering because we couldn't find the switch. And I got to tell you, I, I, I don't know if I've ever hated myself more than I did in that moment.
because it was really no one else's fault but mine that I was there. And uh, it's really hard to get a good night's sleep when you're feeling like that. And I don't know when I passed out, but I remember coming too, because Liz was between my legs, going, Mama got you wakey wakey. (laughs) (laughs) How's my little lumberjack? (laughs) Oh, it was so awful, but not for all the normal reasons. (laughs) something had gone really wrong in the middle of the night right because when I woke up my gut was like out to here and I like it was swollen like I was pregnant and there was just just like burning fire that was in it and then all of a sudden like Liz hops on and starts her like you know Viking seizure thing and it's and then it's like it's this explosion of just like these burning hot needles just start shooting through my body and they're going everywhere and Liz and I'm starting to scream because I'm in so much pain and Liz takes that as encouragement and just starts grinding harder she grabs the headboard and she's going off oh my god she's spitting in my face she's calling me a bitch like it's really oh yeah, one of my finer moments, and I'm just like, it, 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 I'm dying. And I'm just clenched up because I know, like, I'm going to explode in all the wrong ways. It is, I mean, our sex was always really traumatizing, but this, like, hit, this was, like, next-level trauma. And, oh, my God. And then she finally, finally, finally started that ape grunting that she did. It was, like, like a gorilla getting punched. And, uh, really, it was... It was awful and so I like knock her off of me and I fell out of the bed and I felt there was a circular staircase because it always has to be so much harder than there you know and I'm just and I make it to the bathroom and I slam the door and I am in so much pain and I'm really really scared because whatever's incubating inside of me like, human body wasn't built to accommodate this like let's just you know and then and on top of it there's this little king like gingerbread man on the back of the door <laughs> Somebody had drawn a V over his eyes, so he's angry, and he's like, <laughs> you know, my death was going to have absolutely no dignity whatsoever, right? And I'm sitting on that toilet, and I know there's only one way out of this thing. There's one way, and if I'm in this much pain now, it's just going to get so much worse. I have tried and tried and tried to figure out, like, a good way to describe what happened next, and there is none. There is none. But uh, I will say this, though, um, that it is probably one of the 10 most amazing things that has ever happened to me. Because when I let go, gas came pouring out of me. And I don't mean like just like a fart. I mean, it was this like steady stream of intestinal wind that did not stop. It was just... And it kept going. It was like a bicycle tire that had like a hole in it. And I and after enough time, like after like 20, 30 seconds, like my stomach had gone down enough and didn't hurt that much. So it got now it got funny. And I started laughing. <laughs> which made my ass hiccup, which made it even funnier. Cause and then it felt really weird. Like <laughs> that's the only part I'd like to relive, actually. And <laughs> 
and uh, and it's just going and going and going and there's this little reindeer clock and the second hand is going around and I'm like oh my god because it's really it's like we passed a minute and at that point I'm thinking oh if I could just call Rusty who was my best friend who would have loved this like that was because that's like who we were together and he'd be like dude is it still going on I'm like it's still happening that's that was our relationship and and oh my god and that and when it finally ended oh my god like I was like a punctured radiator but when it finally ended I was just laying there and I god I hadn't felt that good in months and the thing was it took me a few seconds to realize it was like oh I feel like me again and uh, I'm sure like a psychologist would say something like well your body had been accumulating poisons and in an effort to save itself purged and uh, you know whatever I was done with psychologists by that point and uh, but I did purge I purged Liz immediately and uh, she didn't go down without a fight. I think it's called like just all out stalking is what she did. Uh, she kept showing up at my house, calling. This is before the age of burner phones, but she got burner phones and would call me from numbers I didn't know. She was still hanging out with my mom. I mean, it took, for, it took months to get her to stop. And for a shrink, you would expect a little bit better, right? <laughs> and the sad and as pathetic as it is, that's what it took to wait. It took me blowing myself out of my own ass to like realize it was like, oh, so what? Life kicked the crap out of you. Big deal. Get up. It's not an excuse. You know, that's what it took to remind me of that. So that's the story about why I hate Christmas and won't eat McDonald's. <laughs> As for my relationship with my mother... I'm still not married, and yes, she still brings up Liz. Thank you. Good night. This is Risk. This is Liz Fair we're hearing right now. And we just heard a story from Sam Firestein. He actually told that many months ago, and but we decided to hold on to it for Christmas time. Listen, if you are anywhere near New York City on January 9th, 2015, you gotta come out to our big, big show at the Bell House. This is gonna be the biggest show that Risk has ever done in New York City. It'll be the first show of 2015 for us. We have a lot of special guests. Unfortunately, I can't name most of them because, well, because we have to keep it a secret for the time being. But anyway, the biggest risk show that we've ever done in New York City, January 9th at the Bell House. Go to risk-show.com slash tour to find out more, and you gotta come on out. It's gonna be a hell of a night. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from one of everyone's favorite regulars on the podcast, Danny LaBelle. He's gonna share a story about Thanksgiving. Uh, but before that, we're gonna start with Hank Chen, 
his first time on the podcast. Hank was in the remarkable series uh, Transparent. If you haven't had a chance to see that, wow, so great. Uh, and also, he's going to be on Community next year. A community is moving from, I think, NBC to Yahoo with a bigger budget and all. That's going to be super exciting. Hank is just super smart and super sweet and super cute. If you, if you live in New York City and you know someone who is as cute and gay and Asian... <laughs> And Hank Chen, please alert them that I'm looking for them. Hank lives in Los Angeles, and I'm, you know, allergic to driving, so ain't nothing shaking there. I like that I've taken this opportunity introducing Hank to to put a personal ad on the show. But for God's sake, let's find me a husband in 2015, gang. Let's stop this nonsense. But on a more serious note, Hank's story is one of our... uh, are deeper stories on this episode. And uh, as I was saying before, you know, both these holiday episodes are a bit of a mixed bag in terms of the happy and the sad. So let's go to it now. Here he is at the Risk Live show at the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles. This is Hank Chen with a story we call A Place at the Table. Thank you so much, guys. So I was, uh, I'm the oldest of two kids. It's me and my younger sister. And people are actually really surprised when they hear that because usually it's the youngest one that goes into entertainment, right? The fun one. (laughs) People say that my sister and I are really alike. So people who know us, uh, one guy actually told me that my sister looks exactly like me. She has just longer hair and a smaller head. Super flattering, but I think, she, I think she's really pretty, so I'm going to take that as a compliment. Being the oldest sibling, our, our age gap is big. It's six and a half years, and also because we're different genders, oftentimes it felt like I was raised as an only child, or sometimes even a third parent. You know, I had to be the responsible one. I had to set the example. I had her back. I looked out for her. Just to give you an idea as to how big this gap was, when I entered college, she was still in sixth grade. So I felt like there were some years missing that we never really got to know each other. But as we got older, we did get close, as close as someone can be when you miss a lot of their formulative years. In spite of how much I love my sister, I always felt like there were missing members in the family, like like there should be more of us here. I have a lot of cousins, and I loved getting together with them during the holidays because it just felt like this commotion was right. You know, I I wanted more craziness in my immediate family, and I always yearned to find a way to make that happen. (laughs) One time, uh, I I, I overheard my parents having sex, and uh, (laughs) and later on in the bedroom, I walked in, and I I saw my dad's used condom wrapped up in toilet paper in the wastebasket next to the bed. I later also found their stash of condoms in the nightstand, and I so wanted to, for years, to poke holes into those condoms. just to sabotage them and have another sibling. I never did. Felt wrong. Here's a tax dependent that you didn't ask for. 
everyone would have thought that he was a miracle baby, but I would have known the truth. (laughs) Whenever I was with my cousins, you know, I felt like I was part of this pack. This was my crew. And every time I got into an airplane or a car to leave, I felt this profound sadness. I wasn't the most social or popular kid growing up, and I think that's one of the reasons why I fell into the church. I mean, here was this, you know, group. We were raised religious, my family, and our youth group, this was where this ragtag group of little Asian misfits could get together. We could leave our public school and our really strict upbringings behind and we could just connect and feel cool even for just a Sunday or sometimes a Friday, Saturday, Sunday because you know they had a lot of activities and if I was available, I was down for all of them all weekend, I was there. Our activities were always seasonal. So in December, a Friday, we would all get together, we would do uh, hot chocolate and Christmas caroling in our white neighborhood. Our Chinese church was inside a white neighborhood and 120 Chinese kids would go up and down these streets and ring doorbells. We would avoid all the menorahs and we would knock and we would sing to all of our white neighbors. And I, and I think, you know, looking back, it's cute and it's sweet, if not a little bizarre. And I feel like our neighbors, you know, they knew we were a Chinese church and I think after a few Christmases, they kind of just got the hang of it and figured that it was something that they could enjoy. I remember one night my dad was driving me to this youth group and I was 14 years old. My friend Easton was in the car and I had just entered ninth grade and I think I was just getting into political activism. Probably someone during lunch that day had been talking about abortion and I decided that I was for a woman's right to choose. So I expressed my opinions in that car. My dad quickly interjected. He goes, no, Bible says you must be pro-life. I, I was like, uh, and I, I tried to maybe have a rebuttal. I was like, well, what do you guys think about like you know, you know, rape and incest? He shut the club down. He said, did you know that you are supposed to have older brother or sister? What? <laughs> 16 years ago, mommy had an abortion. And every single day I pray to God that he forgive me for killing my child. My friend Easton's sitting in the back seat. He's not saying anything. It's super fucking awkward. It's just silence. My dad had just interjected this like social political conversation between two ninth graders and made it really, really fucking personal. He was like, and if mommy no have abortion, maybe you not be here today. What an argument. Okay, I don't, I, I, so are you saying that maybe like you're, you're glad she had the abortion because now I'm here or maybe I'm being like a shitty son today and you wish she didn't have the abortion so I wouldn't be here. I, there was no time to really unpack this because the next thing I knew we were pulling up to the front of the church and it was time to go Christmas caroling. Yay! <laughs> My friend Easton got out of that car, gave me a quick side hug and his ass was on fire. He left that church. I didn't see him for the rest of the night. He was done. That night was a blur, and I couldn't help sitting in that car feel a complete sense of loss. Like, I I was supposed to have this older sibling. I was supposed to have this brother or sister, someone who was supposed to be there to do everything first, someone who was supposed to look out for me, someone who was supposed to have my back the way that I had my little sister's back, but I never had that for myself. And I was also really taken aback by my dad's general lack of tact. Like... <laughs> Mommy have an abortion, so now nobody allowed to have abortion! <laughs> okay, go have fun, Christmas Carol. Fa la 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 la, have fun, goodbye. <laughs> I was numb when I stepped out of that car, my feet planted into the snow, and one of my friends came up to me, and she was like, Hi, Henry. And uh, it, my name is Hank, but Henry was my slave name. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was born with it, a lot of history, just I'm gonna leave it behind. She, uh, so she goes, hi Henry, and she could see that something was occupying my mind, and she was like, what's wrong? And I was like, well, I'm just, I'm just thinking about my older brother. Uh, for some reason, I just assigned a gender. And she goes, oh my God, well, I, I feel like I've never met your older brother. And I said, oh, well, you know why? Because he's dead. My parents aborted him 16 years ago. He's dead. That's why I've never met him. He's not here anymore. He's dead. He's aborted. Where's the hot chocolate? Let's go sing some songs. <laughs> my mom had a miscarriage after I was born before she had my sister, which would explain the six and a half year age gap. And I remember that time, even though I was very little, I remember it being really difficult for the family, but at least we were able to go through it together. That night in that car, when my dad dropped that bombshell in front of my friend on my way to go Christmas caroling, I felt completely alone. And I look back humorously and in a very macabre way, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm kind of surrounded by dead siblings here. So it's aborted, me, miscarriage, my little sister. To cope with this, because I never talked about it with my parents ever again, not really. I mean, I kind of inferred that, you know, they, they were new to America. They were kind of getting their foundation. They were already married. They had jobs, but maybe they just weren't ready to have a kid. I had no real outlet. So I became the most staunch advocate for pro-life rights you have ever seen in any high school. I went all out. I remember government class, when I had the opportunity to give a presentation on Roe v. Wade, I contacted the Maryland Right to Life Organization, the National Right to Life Organization. I got stickers, bumper stickers, flyers, posters. I put a button on my backpack, it's a child, not a choice, walked around in schools with it, and I also got a uh, petition that would not allow you to have partial birth abortion. So I was going around getting students and teachers to sign this thing, and anyone who was on the fence, not a problem, because I had a photograph of a partially aborted fetus to show them, just carried it around with me. <laughs> my classmates thought that I was psychotic. And this presentation, I got a fucking A, I did my research. It was beautiful. It was this big poster, a lot of photographs, and yeah, a lot of research. And I didn't stop there. I took that poster to my church, and in between sermons, I started soliciting signatures from members of the congregation, uh, getting them to sign this form. And, and, and I would go into my teens group, youth group service, and I would leave this poster up. And in the middle of this poster, there was this flap that if you brought it down, there were all of these photographs of dead, aborted babies. And it just stood up on its own. It was like a trifold kind of a thing, so I just left it up. About uh, a few days later, I got a call from the church. Hello? Hi, is this, is this Henry? Yeah, hi. Um, this is Pastor Tung. I think you did a great job on your school project. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, I think that there's a little bit of a, I think there's been some concern about some of the graphic content on there, you know, kids are walking by and people are eating around that time. So, you know, maybe we, uh, maybe we don't have to display it. I go, oh, okay. He offered me a compromise. He said that I could still solicit signatures as long as I supervised the poster and made sure that no one saw the photos of the dead babies. I was totally fine with that. And eventually, this phase passed. The pendulum swung back and I fell right back into the pro-choice category, but this was my way of coping. I took an image of someone that I so wanted to be here and I literally showed him 
to everybody. You were here. You matter. I miss you, and I don't even know you. The ironic thing is, in my childhood home, we had this dining table, and it seated six. And the absence of two people felt so much more real after that night with Christmas caroling. I mean, I, it's sort of like Big Brother, you know, like after they start voting out house guests, like just the, the empty seats. It's awkward because two people used to be there and now they're empty and they're not. And I know with family prayer time, my dad used to have to reach across the divide and grab my hand. He had to reach over that gap. And, and it finally made sense to me because there should be two other people here. It felt like it felt like untapped potential. Like, you know, mom and dad, you've got like two out of four kids going on here. That's like 50%. That's failing. It's an F. Totally unacceptable, especially in an Asian household. Like, you know, my little sister, she was the first person in my immediate family that I came out to. About 10 years after the Christmas caroling incident, I was living in New York at the time. She was already in high school. I came home for the holidays. I remember I was kind of just reeling from the drama of some stupid guy and we were lying in my bed and watching episodes of Terminator, Sarah Connor Chronicles. And in between episodes, she sensed that something was going on. So she said, hey, just so you know, my friends think you're super cool. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Thank you. She said, uh, you know, I mean, they all think you're gay, but uh, you know, that's super cool because Becca, her best friend, Becca has a gay uncle and he's like her favorite uncle and he's super cool and she loves gay people. All my friends love gay people. It's super cool. <laughs> And I, I was already at my private life, but I had not come out to members of my immediate family because I was scared to do that. And I thought, well, maybe this is my way in. Maybe this is my opportunity. And so I, I decided to present this situation with this guy and get her take on it. And I made sure to mask all of the pronouns. So instead of him or he, I said this person or they. And she listened intently. And I don't know why I felt like I needed advice from my six and a half years old younger sister. I just felt like maybe she had me beat when it came to the romance department. And her, her advice was good. It was some good shit. Um, and it, what was really interesting is as she was talking to me, she also masked all of those pronouns. And so I thought, well, this feels safe. And so at the end of this conversation, I said, and just so you know, all of this stuff that's going on, it's, it's, um, it's a guy. And she said, oh, okay. Yeah, I figured as much. <laughs> it was totally inconsequential. And of all the times that I've had her back, this was one of those times when she had mine. Our dining room table gets emptier and emptier. My sister and I don't talk anymore. Four years ago, she outed me before I was ready, and uh, I think she needed to draw the attention off of herself because my parents lost their minds, and they were freaking out that she was dating this Indian guy that they hated, and so she gave them something else to freak out about. I think coming out is probably one of the harder things that a gay person has to go through. And to me, I just figured, you know, well, if you don't want a gay son, I guess that just means you no longer have a son, right? But at least I have my little sister. Except she wouldn't return my phone calls. Hey, um, so I figured you're probably really busy with school and I know what's going on, but it would really be great if you could talk to me. Um, Mom and dad are kind of freaking out. I know it's, you're kind of like at the front lines here. 
please give me a call back when you get the chance. I called once, I called twice, sent texts, emails, Facebook messages, and about a month and 20 emails, calls, texts, messages later, I finally gave up. And just like the rest of my siblings, she became dead to me. Thank you very much. first thing I want to tell you is I have two favorite holidays. They are Thanksgiving and Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur couldn't be more different in many ways than Thanksgiving, but I feel like I love them both for very different reasons. Yom Kippur, it's known as the Day of Atonement. Part of the rules of Yom Kippur is you fast from everything physical. You fast from sex. You fast from food. A lot of people dread Yom Kippur. A lot of Jews don't even like it. But for some reason, I've always loved it. I've always felt like so connected to something bigger. When I remove all these other distractions, and I'm really able to get into my head and really able to sort of feel the world around me without anything to numb it. But there's more that I love about Thanksgiving that doesn't have to do with eating. And that is that it is the one day somehow from my whole childhood that's been preserved as a good day. There's definitely been Hanukkahs that have been fucked up, right? But Thanksgiving, and just Thanksgiving, I don't have one bad Thanksgiving memory. My entire childhood, it remained preserved as a day of holiness, of of holy, happy family fun. I've only missed two Thanksgiving Macy's Day parades my whole life. One when I was a kid and it rained too badly and we decided not to go. And one when I spent a year abroad. I cannot stress enough how important this day is. So much so that this year, where I'm struggling to get on my feet here in L.A. and money is not in abundance, the little money I had I saved up to go back to New York for Thanksgiving to make sure I don't miss a parade. Thanksgiving doesn't really have a spiritual element to it to me, but it does have a warm feeling of being a kid. It's the one day that I get to be a kid again. And that's a lot of why I go to the parade every year and I don't miss it. It's because for one day a year, no matter what age I am, I'm back to being a kid where the world is just mysterious and magical and just full of wonderment. And I go sit out there at the same spot every year on 72nd Street across from the Dakota on Central Park West. And I cheer when every float goes by like I did when I was a kid with my dad and my brothers and my mom and my dad's friend and their family and we'd all meet there and that was 
the most beautiful tradition outside of any kind of religious tradition that we ever had as a family. So nothing can really ruin Thanksgiving. And, and so I miss New York living in L.A. I, I feel like New York kicked me out. And uh, there's still some unfinished beef there between me and New York because... What happened is I think Bloomberg did too good a job as mayor and the city got too expensive and it was hard to be an artist. So I'm really hoping this new mayor fucks it all up so I can come home. But for one day a year, New York is still friendly to me. New York is affordable. It's fun. It's exciting. And this year was no different. In fact, this year may have been the greatest Thanksgiving Day parade that I've ever been to. This year, Kylie and I flew back to New York for Thanksgiving. My brothers couldn't make it, but Kylie and I soldiered on, and we woke up early and took the Long Island Railroad in from my parents' house to New York, and we got there a bit too late because by 9 o'clock, everybody's already situated, and I I was freaking out. What if we don't get to see the parade? It's going to... What if we don't get close enough? And Kylie's like, don't worry, it'll work out. We get on the A train, and we pass our stop, and it's taped off by the police. I'm like, they're blocking me from Thanksgiving. What are they doing? The first open spot was 86th Street to get off the subway. So we get off at 86th Street, which is where the parade starts. And the parade had already started. We get out of the subway, and there it is, a barricade with a police officer separating grown-up New York from being a kid. I said, all right. I'm going to go, and I'm going to try and talk to him. I don't know what I'm going to say, but I start walking towards the police officer to try my best line, and I don't even know what it's going to be. And right in front of me is a very well-dressed, real classy Upper West Side woman goes up to the police barricade, and he says, I'm sorry, ma'am, you can't come in here. It's closed off for the parade. And she goes, I live on this block. And he goes, oh, I'm so sorry, and he opens it. And I say, come on, Kylie, now's our chance. Let's go. So we start walking behind her. The cop says, you can't come in here. What are you doing? And I go, I live on this block. And he says, I know you're lying to me, but I didn't even look back at him because in my head I thought, if I lived on this block, I wouldn't have patience for this guy. I could buy and sell police officers if I lived on this block. I am the upper echelon. I'm the 1%. I just kept walking and waited for him to sort of chase me down and grab me by the shoulder and be like, I told you, I know you're lying or something, but he didn't. And we just kept walking, and we were in the setup of the parade. So to the right of us is where everybody is being filtered who lives in the neighborhood into the area to watch whatever's left of the parade. And to the left of us is the street, is Central Park West. And there goes the Believe balloons, the big stars. And something about seeing the word Believe on those Macy stars made me believe I could be in the parade this year. Why wouldn't I try There I am. Nobody suspects me. I'm only there because they think I'm a classy guy to begin with. I don't know. I look at Kylie and I say, follow me. And we just start running and slapping five with everybody as if we're part of the parade. And we stop behind the Believe balloons. And and what catches up to us on either side are toy soldiers. And I realize we're right in front of Santa's sleigh, right in front of the Escalade that's in front of Santa's sleigh. We are... The introduction to Santa. They stop everybody, they blow a whistle, and they and they motion, keep walking, and Kylie and I hold hands, and like a presidential couple, start waving to either side, right in front of Santa. 
we start walking and it's exhilarating and everybody's cheering like crazy because it's the end of the parade and Santa Claus is there and it feels like it's for us and we're just walking we have toy soldiers on either side we're part of Santa's motorcade and no one is stopping us going off to the sidelines every now and then slapping everybody five happy Thanksgiving happy Thanksgiving everyone's going nuts I felt like if being a kid was the high that I was chasing, I was as high on the best stuff you could possibly get. I forgot that I was exercising for 16 blocks. It was exhilarating until it hit me, and I realized, oh man, I didn't even have my jacket zipped up in the cold. I was just running on pure adrenaline, and I'm kind of starting to feel the effects of 16 blocks here, and I'm not in great shape, and I don't know how, how I did that at that pace for so long, but... I did it. I realized I didn't have too much steam left in me, but I didn't want to quit until I absolutely had to. But I also wanted a photo. I took a few shots of Kylie, and I said, take a few shots of me. And she said, we could get busted. if we, You can't be taking photos in the parade, you know. If you're in the parade, that's unprofessional. But I needed some kind of documented proof that this ever happened, and I didn't dream it. Kylie takes a picture of me, and you can even see in the picture, it's the most perfect picture, because it's me smiling and waving with the parade on either side of me. And this toy soldier looking back, turning his head, looking like that guy's not supposed to be here. He looks back at me. And then as soon as Kylie takes a picture, he, he stops and he gets up in my face. And he goes, hey, you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to be in this par- parade, are you? And you're not supposed to be here. And the fact that he'd said something like, are you? Or, or questioned himself in his statement. I, I could tell he wasn't sure of himself because for 16 blocks, he hadn't stopped us. I knew I could get away with this a little longer and I and I said well, what are you talking about of course we're supposed to be in the parade why are you stopping to talk keep keep walking you're slowing everybody down and he goes oh sorry and he turns around and he keeps walking but it didn't last for very long because not even a minute or two later he turns back around and he goes well if you're supposed to be here then where's your badge and I didn't even know people had badges for this so this one I didn't have a good answer for I just go uh well I don't have it I don't have it. What do you t- What do you mean? Not, not everybody has their badge. Come on, come on, keep moving. But he wasn't buying it this time, and he said, "No, no, no." And he pointed out a woman who was walking along the side of the SUV with a police officer, and he goes, "Go talk to her." And we start walking towards her, but before anything else, the police officer comes up. She goes, "What the hell are you doing in this parade? What the hell? You're not supposed to be in this parade." And I didn't. I didn't even have the energy left to fight it, but for some reason. I don't know where this came from, but I said, if you want us to leave peacefully, you're going to have to snap some pictures of us in front of Santa Claus on the sleigh. I don't know where this came from, that I said this to a New York City police officer, and she just looked at me, and, and by some Thanksgiving Macy's miracle, she took my camera phone, and she snapped pictures of me and Kylie, some of the best shots with Santa waving behind us on his sleigh. Pictures you could only get by being in the Thanksgiving parade. (laughs) I don't know why she did it, but she did it. She didn't care. She let us go. She put us back into the sidelines of the parade, and Kylie and I were as giddy as two little kids could ever be. We're bouncing up and down with adrenaline and excitement, and, and we're just like, I can't believe we did that! I can't believe we did that! We're running down the block, literally jumping with excitement. We're in the parade. We introduced Santa Claus. (laughs) A little Jewish kid from Queens brought Santa to the masses that day. 
and they loved him for it for 16 blocks. And that was the best Thanksgiving that I've ever had. was born on Christmas Day. Hark now hear the angels sing a new king born today. And man will live forevermore because of Christmas Day. This is Risk. This is the Harry Simeon Corral behind me now. I used to listen to this very track when I was a kid in the basement and kind of dance around pretending to be an old Jamaican man singing this song. And we just heard from the wonderful Danny LaBelle his story of his love for Thanksgiving. Now we're going to switch over to another story that was told at the latest Risk Live show at the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles. And she is so wonderful and so ridiculous. She is Nicole Byer. You've seen her on MTV's Girl Code. And I can't wait to have her back because she was so much fun. Here she is now with a story we call Seasons Drinkins. That man will live forevermore because of Christmas Day. Christmas Day. That was so nice, so kind, so kind. The running theme of like growing up when like Christmas was happening was like ruining it for my sister. <laughs> she is a year and a half older than me, but you would never know it because she's five foot nothing and a hundred pounds, and I just look like a beast next to her. When my grandparents would be like, Are you guys hungry? I'd be like, She's not hungry. So she like doesn't answer anything on her own when I'm around. Like we'll be at a store and people will be like, Is that all for you? And she'll be like, And I'll be like, yes. (laughs) I've ruined her for talking to people and she's single. Wait, this is a podcast. I hope she'll listen. Oh, whatever. Uh, (laughs) But I have. I've ruined her for people. But I used to like root around in my mom's closet and in the laundry room and I'd find presents and I'd be like, Catherine, where can I get bracelets? And she'd be like, no, stop it. Stop it. And I'm like, no, where can I get bracelets? (laughs) 
And then uh, my sister Catherine would go tell my mom. She's like, Nicole found bracelets. And then my mom would be like, well, no one's getting bracelets. And then we would never get the things I would find. <laughs> and one year, it was right when Segas were very popular. My mom was like, girls, do you want a Sega? And I was like, got this, Catherine. No, we do not. Segas are for boys. And Catherine was like, boys. <laughs> and then like the next year, everybody had a Sega. Everybody had a Nintendo. And then I was like, mom, can we please have a Sega or a Nintendo? And she was like, nope, those are for boys. How fucked up is that? One thing I said just like stayed for all the Christmases. We got bicycles one year. And this is like, they're delivered, they're like by the tree. I got a purple one, I love purple. I love colors, what the fuck am I wearing? Um, and my sister got a pink one because she liked pink at the time. And uh, Catherine like rushes over to the bicycles and she was like, they're from Santa! And I was like, uh-uh. And she was like, what do you mean? I was like, Santa's not real. And she was like, <gasps> she was like six at the time. And I was like five. And I was like, uh-uh, no, Santa's not real. And because um, I was very sassy all my life. And she was like, but look at the card. It's written in this like weird handwriting. And I was like, that is called calligraphy. And mommy's been taking classes. Because <laughs> I found a box in the laundry room and I was like, what are these weird pens? And I was like doodling with them and then I was like in her address book and I found that she like had an appointment for click. I was like a little fucking, uh, I almost just said Harriet Tugman, but she was not a detective. <laughs> I, I think I was thinking of Harriet the Spy. <laughs> but Tugman was in my brain. I was like, don't say that. Um, the Christmas that stands out to me as like the best Christmas was my mom was like, girls, what do you want? And Catherine said, bullshit. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't matter to me. I don't care what she wanted. But I was like, mom, I need an oatmeal colored sweater. I know what you're thinking. You're like, what? <laughs> but I was like into it. I was like, I had this like vision in my head, a very dark denim, an oatmeal colored sweater, squirts of Clinique Happy and like living my life. <laughs> so, so we would like go to Sears and I'd be like, like, you know, the Husky section. And I'd be like, mom, do you see this sweater? This is oatmeal colored. And my mom's like, I know what oatmeal is. And I was like, just verifying. And I talked about this oatmeal colored sweater for maybe three months. I like, I wanted it like ribbed. <laughs> I wanted a turtleneck. So I could fold it down, put a necklace under it. Uh, like I had a real vision, like a silver necklace with like a fairy. I don't know, like I had this whole vision. And then I got it and I went to school and nobody was like, girl! Everyone was just like, whatever, English. But uh, <laughs> that was one of the best Christmases. <laughs> Uh, and I don't really, I don't really like Christmas. My mom passed away, real downer. After someone's dead for a while, you get to joke about it, okay? Um, <laughs> so my mom died when I was 16, and she died in October, so November, December, Christmas. And uh, I was like, guys, Dad, Catherine, let's put up this tree. And they were like, we're good. And I was like, fuck you, I'll put up this tree, I will do it. 
So I ran around the house, putting lights in all the windows. I put up this fucking fake Christmas tree, branch by branch. <laughs> by yourself sucks. <laughs> if you ever fucking had to do it, they give you these little colored tabs, and you're like, I don't know why this purple's not going in purple. <laughs> it's because it was magenta. <laughs> so I put up this like six foot tall Christmas tree, and I was like, ah, fucking did it. And then I was like, gotta get that star on that tree. It never occurred to me to get a ladder, a chair, a tape, anything to stand on. So I kind of like straddled this tree kind of. And I've always been a very big girl. And I got that star on top of the tree and then all of a sudden it was like, no! Tree fell on top of me. It was like, doosh. And then my dad came in and was like, Hmm. <laughs> so he was right. I should not have celebrated Christmas. I should have mourned my mother. Maybe I'd save more in therapy now. Um, <clears throat> so my dad's also dead. <laughs> um, <laughs> and after he died, I just kind of like spiraled into this like fucking maniac. Because he died in June and we didn't sell the house until like February-ish. So I spent Christmas with my sister. I remember getting belligerently drunk and she was like, please don't drive my car, which was a minivan. And I was like, I could drive a minivan, I'm fine. So I like (laughs) took this like double (laughs) bottle of wine with me, it was rosé, in the minivan. It didn't fit in the cup holder. I tried so hard. I was just like. (laughs) And then I was just like, fuck it. And then I like put it in the center console and then I like swerve swerve to the diner and I ordered a Texas wrap the Middletown diner I ordered a Texas wrap which is just delicious it's chicken and bacon and ranch just wrapped up and uh, I always felt healthy eating it because there's lettuce um, so I like get to the diner I order my Texas wrap and the lady was like honey because they're Greek that's my Greek honey <laughs> honey do you want me to that's not Greek at all <laughs> I'm gonna go for it though. I'm gonna commit. Honey, do you want me to call a cab for you? <laughs> and I was like, no, I don't need a cab. I got this. And then get in my sister's minivan. I'm like swigging my rose, flying down, I think, uh, Laurel, Laurel Avenue, whatever. I was like going through Homedale. And uh, I remember having, like, I put the bag in the center, because, you know, in, like, a minivan, there's, like, nothing there. So I put the french fries and my Texas wrap down there, and I remember just, like, eating like this as I was driving, eating like this as I was driving, and finally I was just, like... (laughs) As I was driving, which, like, isn't good, but I remember being, like, this is delicious. And then I remember... And I was, like, that wasn't good. And then I hear... And I was like, that's not good either. I didn't stop. I didn't get out. I just like saw a tree and was like, that's my friend. Uh, (laughs) Which is awful. And then I get home, get out of the car, look around. I had hit a tree and I took off my sister's side view mirror. There's a giant gash in the side of the door and no tire. (laughs) I drove home on a rib. The (laughs) was metal on the pavement. And I left a trail (laughs) to the driveway, to the garage. And I remember throwing out the bottle and going, this will be better in the morning. (laughs) And that was, I think this was like four days before Christmas. 
And I like didn't wake her up. I just like went outside to be like, I remember what happened. And I looked at it and I was like, this isn't any better. This is not good. I was like, I guess I gotta tell Catherine. So Catherine like wakes up and she's like, what? And I was like, I did something bad. And she was like, what? We go outside and she was like, the fuck? My sister never curses. She is literally like a human Minnie Mouse. And like she's just quiet and meek. And she was like, Nicole, I can't fucking believe you. This fucking is bad. I was like, what? It's not like dad's gonna yell at us. And then she didn't laugh at that. She was not on board with my dead parent jokes at that point. And then we called my dad's friend Steve over because we were like, I don't know, I was... 21, she was 22, and we had no idea how to get this giant minivan with three wheels anywhere. So Steve just like walks around the car, looks at it, looks at me, and he was like, come on, I'm your pal. What really happened? And I was like, someone hit me. And he goes, impossible. Not, that's not how cars hit each other. That's imp- what, did, why didn't you get his insurance? And I was like, he didn't have any. It's because he was a tree. <laughs> so that's why I didn't get his insurance. But to this day, Steve never knew that I was truck driving, but Steve knew. Steve knew what was up. What else? What else? Oh, one Christmas. Oh, <laughs> what a note. I wrote one Christmas, I took a shower with my shirt on. I have no idea what that story is, and I don't know why I thought I would remember it. So we'll skip over that. So, uh, <laughs> I remember it too, I just don't remember what it had to do with Christmas. I was wearing a black shirt and I was loving my life. I was just like, yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, the Christmas that made me like really kind of just like, slow down and not drink so much. It was like a little bit after Christmas and I uh, had two roommates at the time. I was living in New York and I got so drunk like every night of that week and I was doing this. Oh, I guess I was taking, no, I don't remember it. (laughs) I thought the shirt showering was coming to me. It wasn't. Uh, But like that whole week I kept taking drunk showers because I was like, it feels so good. (laughs) It it feels so good to be drunk but clean. Um, It feels great, you guys. But, like, be careful. (laughs) Be careful. The first night I took a drunk shower, I, like, was standing and then was outside of the tub on the floor, and I had no idea how it happened. But I was literally like, I guess guess that shower's over. But uh, (laughs) later that week, I was drunk in my shower, and I was standing again, but then I was, like, face down in the water, and I was like, my body hurts, my, my body. And I looked down and I'm just in a pool of blood and I had hit my chin, I have a scar here from it, but I had hit my chin like on my way down. I don't know what I hit. I guess the spigot, is that what it's called? <laughs> Something, some sort of hardware in that tub like really hit my fucking face. And I don't know if I like passed out I don't know if I like fell and was like with it. I was so drunk. But like I just remember being like, this is not good. And I like got up and I couldn't figure out how to get the water down. And I was like, 
I don't know. And then I slept on the couch, went back to the bathroom, and I woke up because I had to go to work the next day. And my whole fucking face was like swollen. I like looked at the tub and I was like, mm, I gotta go. So I left a tub full of bloody water <laughs> while I was living with two other people. And I texted Jenny and Evan and I was like, I killed someone. <laughs> I'm an awful roommate. <laughs> and then Evan kept texting me through the day. He's like, what happened? And I was like, not answering. <laughs> I think this happened partly because I was still wasted. I was so drunk. And then uh, I was working in a building where there was nurses on the fourth floor. And whatever reason, there was no snacks for them. So they came to our floor to buy snacks from the vending machine. And they were always so hungry. I'm very sassy. And uh, I asked one of the nurses, I was like, should I get stitches? And she's like, go! No, the Doritos didn't fall. I was like, okay. So I got her her Doritos. And I should have gotten stitches. I asked the doctor later and he's like, yeah, your chin's fucked. <laughs> There's like a little, a little nubbin right here. I have two scars from drinking. One would think I would stop, but never. Okay, everyone had a nice little antidote at the end. Mine was, I'm never gonna stop drinking. That's, no, let's not end there. Let's end on something good. <laughs> uh, you're a nice looking crowd. <laughs> Thank you guys, I'm Nicole Byer. it for this week folks don't forget we will have a second holiday stories episode next week all new stories and uh, once again the good the bad and the ugly a real mix of uh, uh, an emotional roller coaster ride it's a coming this is the gasoline brothers behind me now love this song hungover boxing day and also don't forget that gigantic January 9th show that we're having at the Bell House in Brooklyn. 
If you are anywhere near New York City on January 9th, you gotta be at the Bell House to see Risk. It'll be our biggest show ever, and we're looking forward to having a big, big crowd. Also, don't forget that you, as a Risk fan, it's part of your job. In 2015, I've decided, since recording these hosting segments, to find me a husband. You know all the things he should be. He should be uh, gay and Asian and kinky. That's, yeah, that's that's a lot. (laughs) So get to work, motherfuckers. Let's, uh, you know, stop dilly-dallying around and get my... Filthy, filthy, open marriage started. One more thing you should never forget is that Risk is a proud and happy member of the Maximum Fun network of podcasts, and we're listener-supported. If you love what we do, help us out. We very, very much rely on the financial help from our listeners. So go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and make a one-time contribution or become a member. And be sure to earmark your contribution for risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Christmas, and yes, you are about to hear the actual action of this Christmas morning, and yes, but before we get to the centering, let's have a weather report from our beloved Donald Kurt outside at the moment. Uh, yes, and it's, uh, it's very cold at the moment, it's very cold. Thank you, Don. 